This podcast is a 3D audio production, so watch out as sounds may seem to come from beside you or behind you. For the best listening experience, please use headphones. I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Realm presents... Orphan Black, The Next Chapter, starring Tatiana Maslany. Episode 6. Delphine had opted for her presentation day underwear. The underwear came from a little place in Paris. It had no sign, only a name written in block letters next to the worn brass of the button outside the door. It was like a rumor among the women of her mother's circle, a place you could only access on certain days, like visiting fairyland on the night of an eclipse. The name was in her phone somewhere. The woman who ran the place gave Delphine a single stare, inhaled deeply from a slender contraption that was probably a cigarette, and snapped her manicured fingers for an assistant. She rattled off Delphine's sizes like a surgeon asking for extra suction. Don't you have to measure me? Delphine had asked. The woman shook her head. She exhaled and said in a very dry, long-suffering voice, You're quite ordinary. Delphine, who had never once in all her life considered herself ordinary, bristled at the verdict. But the pieces fit. They fit perfectly. 
They fit better than any other piece of underwear she'd ever owned. She had visited the shop for wedding lingerie and come away with a warm credit card and crinkling bags frothy with tissue paper, each holding a tiny sachet of dried flowers. Jasmine and rose and honeysuckle and other flowers meant to draw love and repel moths. Inside one such bag was the Presentation Ensemble. The Presentation Ensemble consisted of memory silk in a deceptive shade of blush. Sometimes it seemed pink, and sometimes it seemed ivory, and other times, like under candlelight, it glowed with a strange golden sheen. The underwire was surgical grade, and not really a wire at all. It held her firm and upright like the touch of someone expertly leading her through a waltz. The panties never budged. The stockings involved smart thermal threads impregnated with hyaluronic acid. They swelled and shrank according to ambient temperature. Miracle space-age fibers, Kazima had said when she first saw the presentation ensemble. Her fingers had paused their progress in unhooking the stockings from the garter. Do you think they'd leave a mark on your wrists? I suppose we'll just have to conduct an experiment, Delphine told her. For science. For science, Kasima said and slowly peeled the first stocking down her thigh. Delphine savored this memory as she prepared to deliver her presentation. She had rehearsed it any number of times in front of her steamy washroom mirror and in the driver's seat of her Tesla and sometimes even while checking on the raccoons that trundled brazenly along the fence that separated Delphine and Kasima's property from that of their neighbors. There was a whole family of them out there, a mama raccoon leading her kits and teaching them the finer points of urbanism and petty larceny. We're making them smarter, Kasima had told her when they first moved into the house on Gavin Street. Humans, I mean. The city kept trying to keep them from opening the green bins and eating the organic waste. So they hired this big German design firm to make a raccoon-proof bin. It cost the city millions of dollars. It had a twisting lock and everything. But it was also designed to open the moment it was tipped at a certain angle so that garbage trucks wouldn't need workers to lift the bins into the trucks and empty them. So what do you think happened? The raccoons learned how to tip the bins over. That they did. It started in Bailey Downs, you know, out where Allison is. Apparently, the raccoons out there learned it first, and that generation taught the next generation. Meanwhile, the raccoons who can open the bins are more likely to go hungry. It's evolution in action happening right before our very eyes. So now the city is facing a wave of genius raccoons, all because it wanted to limit the growth of their population. Kasima took a long drag of her favorite strain. Life finds a way. Delphine thought of the raccoons a lot. She thought about how even without meaning to, humans could have such a demonstrable effect on their local environment that they could influence the cognitive development of an entire species within the span of a single generation. We stand at a precipice, she said now. Before her sat the members of her team, the members of the GRIT task force, and a visiting delegation from a developer of micro-drones. They were the same micro-drones that would collect ambient DNA samples from all over the city, gum, cigarette butts, the spit left behind on to-go cups. The entire group seemed pleased and well-caffeinated, 
They were gathered in the most impressive conference room that her facility had to offer, the one with floor-to-ceiling windows and the best views of Lake Ontario. It was a blazingly brilliant day, perfect late autumn weather, with the kind of sky that melted into the water until they were only one single shade of blue that seemed to undulate across the space like the sound of a bell ringing out. Upon waking, Delphine had thought that this was the sort of day in which nothing bad could ever happen. She was wrong. We stand at a precipice, she continued. As the 21st century continues to unfold, we are just now beginning to understand the challenges that will face us in the future. Climate change, growing inequality, food and water insecurity, the return of diseases we thought were vanquished, and the arrival of new ones we cannot begin to imagine. And it's important that as we rise to meet those challenges with ingenuity and innovation, we still maintain a strong grasp of lessons from the past about the relationship between science and ethics. She felt rather than saw the eye roll from Greg Kurtzman, sitting one row back and in the center behind Eloise. The people in this room did not want to hear what she had to say, not least because she'd had to say it so many damn times. Perhaps a presentation wasn't the best mechanism for proving her point, but in her experience, the crowd sitting before her was only convinced by pictures and graphs, not actual papers or research. They hated reading. That should have been her first clue about who they were as human beings. She clicked to another slide. It showed a group of children standing behind a barbed wire fence. This is a group of twin children Joseph Mengele experimented on, she said. He believed that because Jewish and Romani children were undesirable, therefore expendable, there was no moral cost to amputating the limbs from both children and switching them to test transplant protocols or giving one twin typhus to see what happened to the other or injecting the heart of one with chloroform to see if the other twin suffered. Several of the people in the room adjusted their posture. The discomfort rippled across the room in the form of crossed legs and pulled shirts and check devices. Delphine clicked to another slide, this one of Mengele himself. At the same time, Mengele was known to be kind to many of the children in his experimental population. He built a kindergarten for them at Auschwitz and a playground, and he made sure they had extra rations. He was known to give them candy sometimes days before sending them to the gas chamber. It was exactly this thin veneer of civility that allowed the International Red Cross to inspect the Terezin family camp at Auschwitz-Birkenau and deem it suitable for human habitation. She clicked to another slide. This is Werner von Braun, she said. He was a major in the SS. For the Nazis, he developed a line of rockets that... Hitler himself referred to as a vengeance weapon. Slave laborers from the Mittelbrau Dora concentration camp were made to build the rockets themselves. More prisoners died building the rockets than were killed by the rockets in combat. The next slide showed von Braun at a meeting of the Special Committee on Space Technology. After the American government secretly brought von Braun and over 1,600 other German scientists to the United States as part of Operation Paperclip, von Braun continued to develop the V-2 rocket. 
Eventually, he developed some of the weaponry used in the Korean War, which resulted in the Redstone rocket and the birth of the American space program. Her next slide showed a group of sharecroppers having their blood drawn at what was then called the Tuskegee Institute. But before Hitler had even risen to power, the U.S. Public Health Service had already begun experimenting on people of color in Alabama in an effort to track the spread of syphilis. In 1932, 600 black men were told that the experiment they were taking part in would last six months. In reality, the study lasted 40 years. Long after the development of penicillin to treat syphilis, these men and their sexual partners remained untreated and uninformed. The public health service allowed them to suffer and die without treatment, promising free meals and even free coffins in exchange for participation in a study they had never been told the truth about. Greg shifted in his seat. His hand popped up. He didn't wait for her to call on him. We all know all these stories, he said. What are you getting at here? What is your point? My point is that the pursuit of knowledge is not a fair trade for liberty and dignity. Mentally, she prepared herself to say what she should have said long ago. What we are doing is wrong. We are collecting DNA without obtaining truly informed consent. We can't explain what is being done with the data we collect, nor can we promise with 100% certainty that the data will remain secure. But isn't that the position of the scientist? That doing the research and discovering the truth is more important than the circumstances surrounding any historical moment? Delphine was tempted to point out that Greg, not being a scientist himself, couldn't really know what position scientists took on anything. You are asking me if the ends justifies the means, is what she said instead. Not that simplistically, but yes, Greg said. All of these experiments contributed to the image of the mad scientist in the public eye, Delphine said. Even leaving aside the suffering that these people endured, the long-term effect was undermining trust in the scientific method. We now live in an era where parents refuse to vaccinate their children for measles. And one of the reasons they do that is because they don't trust the scientists who developed the vaccines. Long before social media and fake news, the history books were already full of experiments. Greg began to say something, but his superior, Eloise, quelled him with a look. I take it you are concerned with our use of biometric security in an urban context. I am, Delphine said evenly. I don't want us to repeat the worst of history. I don't want us to be so optimistic about the potential to do good that we forget about the potential to do harm. I believe there are serious long-term risks to collecting this amount of genetic material. False positives, racial profiling, data leakage. The data is very secure, said another member of the task force. Famous last words, Delphine said. Hidden within the blonde pine depths of her podium, Delphine's phone rang. She had forgotten to set it to silent. Well, there was always something. She soldiered on. I know you're all tired of me making this point by now, but I'm your ethicist. You brought me here to remind you of the darker moments in the history of science. You brought me here to advise you. And I am advising you that in the long term, this form of advanced security will only alienate the population you're trying to protect. 
The phone rang again. She ignored it. Maybe it was her mother. She checked the timer on her watch. Five more minutes. She could make it five more minutes. So could the person trying to reach her. Look at how stop and frisk or carding worked in the cities where it was practiced. Did police catch more criminals? No. They simply made more arrests. They, what's the term, juked their stats. All we're doing by opening the door to daily biometric surveillance is juking our own stats. We're digging the hole for a data lake that will inevitably be poisoned. Now Delphine's assistant's phone was ringing. Delphine watched her pick it up and frown. Her assistant mouthed a single word to her. Cosima. The hairs prickled on the back of Delphine's neck. Underneath her blazer and her blouse and her miracle space-age fibers, her back bloomed with a sudden sweat. Cosima knew about this presentation. She knew who was in the room and how important this was. She would not call unless it were an emergency. If you would please excuse me, my assistant would love to take your questions. Delphine finished and exited the podium. She made for the hallway just as her phone rang yet again. It's me, Cosima said. I know, I'm in the middle of my presentation. What's going on? Well, Sturgis is dead, Cosima said. And also, they think I did it. So I'm under arrest, and I'm probably going to need bail. And obviously, you know, a lawyer. Delphine restrained herself from vomiting into the nearest potted plant. Do we know anybody who works in criminal law? Cosimo was asking. Maybe the immigration lawyer knows someone? Their immigration lawyer? Oh, God. Oh, no. Delphine stared through a sliver of window into the room where she'd been giving her presentation. She'd always had the sense that this was too good to be true, that it would somehow all come crashing down. The beautiful house, the beautiful wife, the meaningful work. And now, just like that, the future she'd imagined for herself and Cosima was gone. Where are you? Delphine bit out the words. Cosima gave her the name of the station. But I'm probably going to be held here for a while, she said. I think I have 48 hours before they have to do something with me, and I imagine they'll spend those 48 hours proving I'm the one who shot him. He was shot? Oh, yeah, Cosima said. I mean, if you're hearing some weird emotional numbness on my part right now, that's probably the reason. I sort of saw his head explode, or at least the immediate aftermath. Which was, as you might imagine, kind of a lot. Cosima sounded as though she were on the edge of tears. Ma petite chérie, Delphine whispered. Don't worry, we'll figure it out. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. 
It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I like your hat, the neighbor said when Vivi asked for a key. It was a toss-up. Which neighbor had the key? One of them had to. And any social engineer worth her salt had learned how to pick them out of a neighborhood. It was almost always the people next door or across the street. And of those, it was most likely to be the person who was at home most often, which meant either stay-at-home parents or the elderly. Vivi decided to try her luck with the elderly, or at least the elderly-ish. The neighbor was a 60-something yoga granny who wore a glittering blue crystal mala around her wrist and leggings that cost more than Vivi's grocery bill. She definitely thought that Vivi was Cosima. Apparently, the cap and glasses had done their job. I'm so glad, Vivi said, pointing at the massive knit cap that she'd stuffed with an actual mop to simulate the hair on Cosima's head. Do you think I should wear it more often? It's a nice change, the neighbor said diplomatically. Not that your usual hairstyle was in any way bad, of course. Of course. It's just, well, I hope you'll forgive me for saying, but I thought you'd had it for a while. I rather think it had outlived its usefulness. If outliving usefulness was how this woman talked about hairstyles, Vivi was going to start thinking about how to recruit her to the company. She beamed. Thanks, she said. I'm really glad you like it. I was so nervous about changing it up. Well, naturally, the neighbor said, and they parted ways. Vivi kept her head down within the doorway and then entered the place like she'd owned it all her life. Given how little she remembered of her early life, this was not a fantastic stretch of her acting abilities. The house was something else. For one, it recognized her. The same trick that had worked on the neighbor had also worked on the house's facial recognition algorithm. A pair of thick glasses was enough to trigger something deep within the house's programming. As soon as Vivi entered, the house lit up. A pathway of light opened up and led her to the kitchen. Vivi smelled fresh paint. She thought of her own apartment in Eastern Market. Was she even allowed to paint? She'd barely read the lease. There were still boxes, packed and taped for moving, in the hall closet. 
They had been that way for almost three years now. Vivi continued into the kitchen. Everything looked new. Plastic sheeting was neatly folded in one corner. Two chandeliers hung over the prep area and Marble Island. German appliances, a monstrous gas stove, the kind an evil witch might stuff a child in. It was topped with a couple of smooth, obviously antique cast iron pans. A rather impressive collection of Japanese and French knives hung from a magnetic strip along one wall, running the size gamut all the way down to a tiny scalpel. Beyond the kitchen was a sitting area, less formal than the living room, with furniture that looked like it actually saw use. It sat under a coffered ceiling. And on the shelves, clustered next to the diplomas and the awards and the lumps of sculpture from far-flung places, Vivi saw them. The photos. They were framed in tasteful silver and wood. As with Allison's house, every photo was of her. In some photos, she wore yoga pants and wine cardigans, and she brandished barbecue tongs. In some, she wore a leather jacket. In still others, she was hugely pregnant, a cloud of bleached hair haloing a chalk-white face. And sometimes, she was the scientist, smashing cake into the French woman's mouth, or hugging two teen girls, or standing under a massive pendulum in what Vivi understood to be a Parisian museum of science. And as with the photo at Allison's house, she was not alone. She had people. She had a wife, and possibly a husband, and children. So many children. Girls and boys, white and black, twins. She had friends. She had a whole damn theater company. Her own face stared back at her from the shelves of this woman's home. All smiling, all different, each iteration reflecting a different possibility a different way a woman's life could go. Again, Vivi thought of her one bedroom, one bath in Eastern Market. She thought of the boxes she had yet to unpack. It had been so long, she had forgotten what was in them. She had no idea if they were even really worth keeping. I want to help you, Sergeant Diasara Priyanta said. I really do. I understand that this is difficult. I think you've undergone a trauma. You were shaking when we gave you those new sweats to wear. Lawyer, the suspect said for what felt like the hundredth time. If you explain to me what happened, you can help both of us, Jayasara continued, as though the suspect had said nothing. Our two countries still have a very friendly relationship. If you level with me now... I think your agency will understand. I can put in a good word with your superiors. I can tell them you helped me solve a murder. Niehaus, or the secret agent pretending to be Niehaus, lifted her head from her arms. In Jayasara's experience, what common wisdom had to say about the guilty being able to sleep wasn't always true. But what she saw in the agent confounded her. She was clearly traumatized by the death of Dr. Sturgis. She was covered in his blood as they recited her rites. Jasada caught herself wondering if Vivi, as Niehaus, would have to take out her locks now that the blood had dried in there. Could they be washed? Would the suspect be more amicable if she were given a wet wipe? <sighs> what the hell are you talking about? The suspect asked. Jasada willed her posture to relax. 
she crossed her legs more loosely. It was helpful sometimes to mirror the behavior that you wished to see in a suspect. If you breathed easy, they would breathe easy. If you calmed down, they would calm down. You set the tone, one of her mentors had said. In any interrogation, the space is yours to set. You have to know how this looks. You're a foreign national in Canada. You've had access to some incredibly specialized labs. You're married to a woman who reports directly to the Canadian government on matters of cutting-edge scientific research. Your publications are stellar, and your passport indicates that you've flown all over the world. And now a scientist you spoke to quite recently is dead, and his lab has been wiped from the face of the earth. The suspect withdrew further within herself. She was vulnerable here. She wanted to relate, she wanted to connect, but she also didn't want to give anything up. She was hiding something and had no idea that Jayasara knew what it was. What are you accusing me of? Did your handlers ask you to start dating Delphine Cormier? The suspect's coal-rimmed eyes widened noticeably. Excuse me? She had never dated women before, isn't that correct? Then suddenly you come along and everything changes? Suddenly you have access to research that people would pay a great deal of money for? The look the suspect shot Jayasara was pure scorn. Is, is that what you think? She rasped. You think I'm a fucking spy? If the lab coat fits, Jay said. I love my wife, Nihas said. Do you understand me? I love my wife. No one asked me to fall in love with her, and I resent the implication that... She's very wealthy, isn't she? Jay asked. Your wife, I mean. She comes from very old money. That can smooth over a lot of little rough patches in a marriage. The suspect glanced at Jay's bare left hand. How would you know? I know who you work for, Vivi, Jay said steadily, ignoring the barb. The sooner you tell me the truth, the better off you'll be. The suspect blinked. Her eyes were bleary and bloodshot behind the trendy spectacles that framed them. You're really serious, she whispered. You actually think I'm a spy? I've already spoken with Davis, Jayasara said. He told me everything about you. The suspect leaned forward in her seat. Her chains rattled as she did so. Interesting. What exactly did he tell you? Vivi was cracking the safe in the bedroom when she heard the front door open downstairs. And one of the tablets beside the bed read, Sarah here. Sarah, the English one, the one who didn't wear glasses, the one with the jacket, the one who always looked slightly less put together than the others. She remembered her from the call. It occurred to her that the facial recognition system must be very advanced. Clearly, whatever machine learning Kasima had patched onto the home was capable of discerning even the tiniest details that set her apart from her sisters. Vivi filed the information away for later. Cause! Sarah sounded very unhappy. Her accent was thicker than it had been on their little clone club call. Vivi stood up, padded over to what was obviously Kasima's closet, and grabbed the nearest batik print tunic she could find. She stripped out of her own shirt, tossed it in the hamper, and threw Kasima's tunic on. 
Then she grabbed a pair of Cosima's glasses from the bedside table and stepped into the bathroom. She found a vial of unlabeled perfumed oil that smelled like what neo-pagans might brew at Burning Man and dabbed it on her wrists and neck. In the mirror, she practiced looking somehow curious at everything and smiled at herself. Cosima! Be right down. Vivi called down the stairs. She made her way carefully down the stairs. Cosima was properly blind without her glasses, apparently. Wearing Cosima's glasses felt like the time Vivi had spent on the farm training against vertigo. Her stomach roiled. She clutched the banister. Maybe she needed some extra time in the gyroscope when this was over. Clearly, she'd let certain aspects of her training slide. Sarah stood at the bottom of the stairs. She looked underslept and freaked out. Vivi recognized the look. It looked the same on both of them. Where the hell is Kira? Sarah asked. I don't know, Vivi answered, honestly. Well, she's supposed to be with you, and she's not. I checked the downstairs apartment already. My daughter hasn't been down there at all. It's too clean for one. I'm sure she's fine. Vivi tried to sound expansive and serene and casual like Cosima. You know how kids are. Not this kid. Not my kid. Vivi heard the chip on Sarah's shoulder as clearly as if it were a songbird perched there. The apple, she guessed, had not fallen very far from the tree. You just have to give her some space, Vivi said, finally making her way into the hall. Space for what? Sarah asked. What could possibly be so big and important and scary that she couldn't tell me about it? I've always said to her right from day one that she could tell me anything. Did you tell your mother everything? Vivi asked. Sarah pulled up short. She frowned. Has Kira said anything to you? What about Delphine? No, Vivi said. But if she does, we'll let you know. Thanks. Lately, I think the only one she talks to is Charlotte. They're always texting. You remember being that age. As she spoke the words, Vivi quietly willed them to be true. There was a real skill in carrying on a conversation with a person you'd never met. You had to let them make their own assumptions, allow them to steer the dialogue to the places they wanted or needed it to go. In her experience, platitudes helped. Deep down, all some people wanted out of a conversation was a living, breathing greeting card. Well, I remember most of it. Sarah huffed air at her bangs. Some of it is kind of a blur, if you know what I mean. Same, Vivi said. Maybe Cosima had been an uptight, rule-abiding high schooler, but she rather doubted it. Speaking of which, can I get a beer? It's just been such a day already. Sarah was already moving toward the fridge. Sure, Vivi gestured vaguely. I'm not sure what we have left, but you're welcome to it. She glanced over at the photos in their frames in the sitting area. So, how's everybody? Everybody? Sarah was busy digging a hole to China via the fridge. Vivi wasn't sure she had ever seen so much green juice in one place, or so much champagne. She made a mental note to look for a wine cellar. Everybody who? You know, everybody. Sarah withdrew from the fridge and brought out two beers and a glass container with a plastic lid. Inside were what looked like chocolates. It's okay if we have these truffles, right? Delphine isn't saving them. No, go ahead. Vivi pried the lid off herself and held the truffles out for Sarah. 
Sarah picked out two and gave one to Vivi. Sarah's was rolled in flaked coconut, but Vivi's was rolled in cocoa. I heard Allison had gone out of town. Vivi continued to press, but Sarah seemed distracted. I love the coconut ones, Sarah said. Delphine is such a genius in the kitchen. I think it's because she's French, you know? I'm a lucky woman, Vivi said, biting down into her truffle. And indeed, Delphine's handiwork was a thing to savor. The truffle melted down into something velvet smooth and night dark. It had a strange aftertaste that Vivi couldn't place, possibly a liqueur of some sort. She swallowed the other half quickly and thanked Sarah when her double used a keychain to pop the tops on their beers. They clinked bottles. The bottles had the infamous local white squirrel on them. Sarah drank hers greedily, taking almost half the bottle in a single go. Privately, Vivi wondered if this was one of the reasons Sarah's daughter had run off. So, how are you students? Sarah picked out another truffle for Vivi. Vivi bit into it and chewed as she thought of her answer. Oh, the usual. She hedged. We're not at the final drop date yet, so I might still lose a few. What about that kid you caught faking his lab reports? Oh, I reported him, Vivi said. We have software to help match those things now. We can compare two documents that are supposed to be from two different writers and see if they copied each other. We should try that sometime. Try what? Running writing samples through your software. See if we tell a story the same way. See if the program could tell us apart. I think it would do a better job than most humans, Vivi said, and caught herself snickering. She frowned at the beer. How much had she had? It looked like a mild enough vice beer, not like a big, sticky Belgian triple ale that could drag her down more quickly. It's not the beer, Sarah said helpfully. It's the truffles, a chock full of THC. It's from a special strain that Cosima created herself when she was sick. She crossed it with a variety of psilocybin that she grew from around mushrooms. It's fast acting. It'll knock you on your ass. The sugar in the truffles makes it enter your bloodstream that much faster, and the alcohol is giving you a crossfade. You would know all that if you were actually Cosima. Sarah grabbed her beer bottle by the neck. Her face had changed completely. The chip on her shoulder was no longer there. The woman standing in front of Vivi knew exactly who she was and what she was capable of. Sarah smashed the bottle on the sharp edge of Delphine and Cosima's beautiful marble kitchen island. She grabbed Cosima's shirt and yanked Vivi out of her bar stool and pressed the broken edge of the bottle into Vivi's neck. Do you want to tell me who the hell you really are and what you've done with my sister? Charlotte's rash was spreading. The rash wasn't quite like any other she had experienced. Then again, she hadn't experienced much. Her upbringing had been sheltered. No, not sheltered. Cloistered. That was a better word for it. Charlotte peered down the leaven wing and thought of the way she'd really describe it, if she were being honest. Smothered. Limited. Circumscribed. Experimental. Monitored. By this age, she was supposed to have experienced the trappings of a normal Canadian youth. Long summer nights full of mosquito bites, all too brief winter afternoons complete with snowballs and runaway toboggans, birthday parties, sleepovers, splitting a box of donuts before a big game, agonizing over final presentations with a project partner, trying out for things, not having things tried out on her. These women, these American clones, 
they'd had exactly that kind of life. Maybe they hadn't quite had the same freedoms as the average person, but they'd had a version of it. And more importantly, they'd had each other. What would life have been like if she'd had her own clone club growing up? What would it have been like for the others? Would Sarah be more trusting? Would Cosima be able to finish things? Would Allison be less... Allison? Certainly, Helena would have been better off. She'd seen Helena's scars once when she let the twins run through the sprinklers in Allison's backyard. Helena had stripped down to a sports bra to chase them through the water, and when she turned her back to Charlotte, Charlotte had almost dropped the bottle of sunblock Allison ordered her to deliver. And then and there, she vowed never to complain about her own childhood in Helena's hearing. Not ever again. She had a lot of time to think, hiding under Dana's bed when the stranger came in. He looked sort of sad and worn, like a thrift store suit in a high school production of Twelve Angry Men. He reeked of cigarettes. Hello, whichever you are, he said. Charlotte hoped that Dana's many blankets hid her from the stranger's observation. Dana didn't respond. Charlotte thought she might be sleeping. Heavy sleeping was one of the symptoms of the illness, but it was impossible to tell when the symptoms would start presenting. Maybe Dana was just groggy from all the drugs in her system. We've never met, the man said. I took over the department that includes your experiment, shall we say, a little over a year ago. I have to tell you, I was appalled when I learned how my predecessor, predecessors really, had handled your case. Such laxity with security and secrecy. You all raise an incredible number of risks, not the least of which a public relations disaster. And all for a program that doesn't even bring any benefits. You'd think there would be some way to use an unknown population of clones to our advantage. Under the bed, Charlotte shivered. Someone must have thought so, at least, to make you all in the first place. But if we haven't found one in 28 years, we probably won't now. I've been trying to figure out a clean ending for this program since I became the director of this department, and while this gambit hasn't worked out exactly as planned, well, that's why we improvise, and I think this will work quite well. Charlotte watched the shadow of the man's arm move. He appeared to be doing something to Dana's IV drip. You're very resilient, you know, he said. You and all your sisters. Like the Twelve Dancing Princesses or some other fairy tale. The hair on Charlotte's arms rose. But all stories have to end, the man said. And once I find Vivi, we can close the book on you forever. Vivi reared back and smashed her forehead into Sarah's nose. Sarah stumbled. Blood streamed from her nose. She did nothing to stop it. She'd clearly learned how to take a punch somewhere. It was so odd, the differences between these women. Vivi ripped off Cosima's glasses. Her legs already felt like they were turning to molasses. Putting vertigo in the mix was a mistake. She put the marble kitchen island between herself and Sarah. They circled it slowly. Vivi's gaze lit briefly on the strip of knives hanging behind Sarah. Who are you? Sarah growled. Did Rachel send you? Which one is Rachel? Vivi asked. Sarah reached behind her. Vivi's heart entered her throat. But Sarah reached blindly, and her hand closed not on the knives, but on one of the cast-iron frying pans. 
She brandished it in the air. Are you sisters? Really? Vivi feigned left. Sarah jumped. Vivi grabbed for the knives. Sarah smashed at her hand with the frying pan. It crunched against the countertop. Pain shuddered up Vivi's arm. Along with it came a sensation very much like sobriety. Adrenaline cut through the crossfade, and she straightened up to her full height. Which generation are you? Sarah asked. People keep asking me that these days, Vivi said. You're younger than we are. Where are you from? Are there more of you? Sarah held the frying pan like a tennis racket. Vivi grabbed for the nearest knife. It sliced through the air audibly as she swung it at Sarah's middle, her hands screaming in pain. Sarah jumped back, cursing. Vivi forced her legs to move. She tossed the knife to her good hand. She lunged. Sarah jumped. Then she grabbed one of the bar stools and held it by the back like a lion tamer at a circus. You know, this is a beautiful renovation, Vivi said. It would be a shame if we had to ruin it. Is there another clone club somewhere? Sarah asked. Where are they? Cosima said that she and Delphine found all of you. Vivi caught herself laughing. Maybe it was the truffles or the beer, but she suspected that deep down somewhere, her mind might actually be fragmenting a little. Seeing so many versions of yourself could do that to a person, especially when all the other versions of you were doing so well at lives that were so much better than yours. Are you here for Dana? Sarah asked. Are you looking for a cure? The knife almost slipped from Vivi's grasp. Her voice, when it emerged, sounded pitifully young to her own ears. Dana? She asked. Her throat started to close. A tiny pinprick in her neck. This is an empty syringe, Delphine said. Do you know what happens if I inject you with an air bubble? Vivi stilled. I stroke out and die. Sarah, Delphine said in her crispest tones. Go into the junk drawer and find the duct tape. Jacetta was about to ask the suspect her opinion on the long-ago unsolved case of a missing Chinese geneticist when she got the signal from outside that someone wanted to talk to her. Maybe that's your lawyer, she quipped, and rose from the table. The suspect's pierced eyebrow rose high into her forehead, and she shrugged. It hadn't made much progress. Which is exactly what she told Greg Kurtzman, the smarmy little pencil-neck civilian from the DOD, when he said he was taking the woman formerly known as Kasima Niehaus out of her custody. She's a suspect in an active murder investigation, Jayasada told him, and we can connect her to the bombing of that genetics lab. Greg smiled at that. We have our own questions for her, especially if she's being investigated in connection with a terrorist attack. We have no idea what kind of sensitive information her wife might have leaked to her or what data she may have stolen. We need to know what she knows. I'm sensitive to that, Jayasada said. She bit her lip, considering whether she should tell him that they suspected Niehaus of being a U.S. intelligence agent. But he would probably take that as more ammunition for appropriating her, and besides, Jayasada wasn't sure whether her bosses had shared that information. But she also knows important information about what the victim was working on in that lab. Hell, this whole murder may itself have been a terrorist hit. All the more reason for me to take her off your hands, 
Greg said. Your office doesn't have the same standards that mine does for protective custody. But it's not my fault you couldn't sweat your own suspect, officer. Greg nodded through the one-way glass at the woman calling herself Kasima Niehaus. Don't be fooled. I know she looks like some trustafarian who married into even more money, but she's dangerous. She's been associated with some of the most ruthless bioterror groups on this planet. Real whack jobs. This whole cult on an island, a series of farms up north, people with tails, I'm not kidding. Certainly didn't sound like DOD was aware that Niehaus was really a U.S. spy. If that intel wasn't being shared, there was probably a reason for it. And maybe she could somehow leverage it later to get Niehaus Valdez back under RCMP jurisdiction. I didn't say you were kidding, but if that's the case, then I should have access to your files, Giacetta said. Maybe her contacts in those terrorist groups know something about this explosion. Maybe she was working with them. Maybe there will be other scientists who get taken out. Don't you think the RCMP has a right to know about that? We're all serving queen and country, Sergeant Priyantha, Greg sneered. But some of us are doing it on a need-to-know basis. He directed the attention of his own officers to Kasima. Get her in the van. Jay watched as they frog-marched Kasima out of the interrogation room. Do you have anything else to tell me? She asked. Sure. All cops are bastards, Kasima said. She turned to Jayasara. Except for Arthur Bell. He knows exactly who I am. He can vouch for me. If you like him so much, you should have married him instead, Greg muttered. Let's get going. The 401 is going to be a nightmare. Talk to Art, Koss called as she was hauled away. Sturgis really kept the platinum close to his chest. She struggled slightly, trying to keep her gaze locked on Jasada's. Like, really close. Take it to Delphine. Jasada waited until they'd rounded a corner before withdrawing her phone. Art picked up on the second ring. You've been holding out on me, she said. Allison was on the floor. She stared into Charlotte's face. Charlotte! Honey, are you okay? Charlotte was not okay. Her skin burned and her head throbbed. She must have fallen asleep. Someone was here, she said thickly. I had to hide. What did they look like? Charlotte rolled out from under Dana's bed. Standing next to Allison was the man who had questioned Dana earlier when she was awake. But unlike the creepy guy who had just been there, This one was the handsomest man she had ever seen outside of a watch commercial. Hi, Charlotte said. Hello, he said. My name is Arun Sangera. He was so nice about helping me carry all this, Allison said. Belatedly, Charlotte noticed that Allison was carrying two to-go carafes of coffee, the kind used for catering an event. The man called Arun was also carrying a box that looked like it probably held cupcakes or muffins. On the outside was writing that read, For the Nurses of the Leaven Wing. Allison had obviously been busy. Charlotte scrambled out from under the bed. Stars exploded in her vision, and she felt, rather than saw, Allison guide her to a chair beside Dana's bed. You should check her IV bag, she murmured. He messed with it. He said he was looking for someone. Who? Arun asked. Describe him. Old, smoky, self-important. He said he was the head of something, the department that controls Dana's program. 
Arun scowled. You're sure about that? The head? Charlotte tried to remember. I'm sure. The director. That's what he said. And he... Embarrassingly, tears were running down her face now. He hates clones. Hates us. It was creepy. And he reeked. He smoked cigarettes, a lot of them. Davis. Arun said through his teeth. You know this creep? Allison asked. Arun remained focused on Charlotte. What did he say? Think carefully. What exactly did he say? That we're risky and useless. Charlotte coughed. He hadn't been talking about her. She didn't know where that we had come from, except, of course, he would have thought the same thing about her if he knew she existed. Probably double, because of her leg. That guy was an ableist if she had ever heard one. He said this was the end of the story, and right before he left, he mentioned a name I didn't know. Violet? Viola? Vivi. Arun whispered. That's it, Charlotte said. Arun's posture changed, a sudden shift into action. We have to leave, now. He snapped the IV line out of the needle taped to Dana's arm. Allison, I need you to help me round up every clone on this wing and help me get them out of here. And then I need to get a message to my acid as soon as possible. Otherwise, she's at risk too. That's if I make it that long, Charlotte said. Oh, don't be silly. Allison's voice sounded higher and thinner than normal. Distantly, Charlotte realized that Allison actually seemed nervous and not just high-strung like usual. Allison lifted her purse. Inside, a bunch of bottles rattled. I went out and got ginseng and turmeric and oil of oregano and... Arun cut her off. The priority now is to get these women out of here. Can you help me? Altogether in the hospital like this, there are sitting ducks, especially to anyone with security clearance. Allison hefted the carafes of coffee. I'll go butter up some nurses. And then they were gone. Allison to the hall, Arun efficiently working through the IVs on the other clones. Charlotte's phone buzzed in her pocket. It startled her, and she dropped it. When she rose from the floor, her vision swam. Sweat dripped down her back. She was a lot dizzier than she'd thought. Her bones ached. Hi, Kira. She croaked. You sound like crap, Kira said. Are you okay? Charlotte braced her hand against the wall. Not really. You? Me neither. Kasima's been arrested. They think she murdered someone. They have evidence. You know what that means. The sweat on Charlotte's skin went cold. It must have been another clone, she said. We have to do something, Charlotte murmured. Stars appeared at the corners of her vision. Yeah, no shit, Kira said. She sounded so much like Sarah. Sometimes Charlotte wondered which of the Sestras she sounded the most like. Charlotte wasn't exactly like the others. She was a copy of a copy. It set her apart. But even so, maybe there was another clone out there who sounded just like her. Who liked the same food and the same bands and the same books. And the two of them would never meet. Would never connect the way Dana and her sisters had. They would always be out there, knowing instinctively that something was missing, but never understanding what or who it was. I do know that for the sympathy of one living being, she began, I would make peace with all. There was a long and terrible silence on the other end of the call. Maybe Kira had forgotten the words. 
or maybe she wasn't ready. Maybe none of them were ready. But the time had come. Someone was targeting Kasima. Someone who had to be unmasked. I have love in me the likes of which you can scarcely imagine and rage the likes of which you would not believe, Kira said, finally. The stars in Charlotte's vision grew larger and brighter. They sparkled and spun, the light rainbowing away and swarming across her vision. She had to get the words out, had to prove to Kira that she was serious, that she meant it. They were in danger, all of them, and this was the only way. If I cannot satisfy the one, she whispered, then I will indulge the other. Do it, Kira. We have to. The floor rose up to meet her. Jessica held up her badge and breezed through the biometric detectors at the federal building on Victoria Street. A very nervous page ushered her through the doors to a field of identical gray office cubes, occasionally dotted with lucky bamboo plants or hockey paraphernalia or dog photos. Art was talking to someone on his phone. I'm going to have to call you back, he said as Jay strode up to him. How do you know Kasima Niehaus? Excuse me? Or the person calling herself Kasima Niehaus? The person pretending to be Kasima Niehaus? Art's brows knitted across his forehead. What exactly do you mean, pretending? I mean, I got a tip from our neighbors to the south that she's actually a federal agent working for them, and that apparently you, of all people, knew about it and decided not to tell me, even though you knew exactly where my investigation was leading. Art's frown deepened. He opened his mouth, then closed it. He held up a finger and then dropped it. Finally, he said, We have to take this elsewhere. What? Are you scared I'll embarrass you like you completely embarrassed me? There's nothing embarrassing about you, Art said. And despite herself, Jay felt herself warm to him. He took her elbow. Let's go. They'd made it as far as the stairwell before Jay came to her senses and wrenched away. The exit light cast an uncanny pall over Art's skin. He looked genuinely frightened in a way she didn't know was possible until this very moment. Are you going to tell me why Kasima Niehaus told me to find you? Or about the weird thing she said? Art licked his lips. He stared up at the ceiling for a minute and then down at the floor. He scuffed at an errant piece of gum with the toe of his shoe. Because she's my friend. He said, You're friends with a CIA agent? No, I'm not. He said, Kasima isn't CIA. In fact, I'm pretty sure she thinks the CIA is full of war criminals who need to be prosecuted at The Hague. Which would be an excellent cover identity for a CIA agent, Jay said, folding her arms. How do you know her? She's my old partner's sister. Jay was about to ask him what kind of partner he meant when she remembered something about Niehaus's file. She didn't have a sister listed. No, she wouldn't. There's no official paperwork linking her to any of her sisters. Jaysara frowned. Wait, how many sisters are we talking about here? Art winced. A lot. How many is a lot? Over 200. Jay snorted. 
She leaned on the railing and stared down the stairwell until she felt the kind of vertigo in her head that matched the one in her mind. Well, she said, you and she have clearly been smoking the same stuff. Let me guess, Art said. You have evidence implicating Kasima Niehaus, but when you arrested her, you couldn't make it stick. Something didn't line up, am I right? I have her on camera entering a building where we found a murder victim. I have his blood in her hair. I have... Do you have the gun? Art's voice was lethally calm. Do you have powder burns on her hands? Jayasada set her jaw. She didn't have those things. She didn't have a weapon. She didn't have residue. And she didn't have motive. Everything she had against the person calling herself Kasima Niehaus was circumstantial. No, she said but I don't even have Niehaus or Valdez or whoever she is. The DOD took her. The DOD? We have to do something. We can't leave Kasima to some extrajudicial process designed for terrorists. Jay turned to him. You really are friends with them. You really have been holding out on me. Jay waited for him to apologize. She waited for him to explain, but he didn't. He remained stone-faced, implacable, and, she noticed now, somehow very sad. Vivi watched the two women argue about what to do with her. We have to take her to the police, Delphine whispered tersely. She sounded more French when she was angry. Her accent got thicker, more comical. It was the same with Sarah. She sounded more South London when she was frustrated with Delphine's particular brand of twee Pollyanna nonsense. Vivi wished she could ask Sarah about her time in England. Vivi had visited Croydon on a job once. She'd taken a double-or-nothing bet for Crystal Palace against Liverpool and won. They were the longest odds she'd ever taken. Longer odds than she had right now. I know that, Sarah was saying. But we also have to find out what she knows who she's with, who she works for. Don't you want to know those things? What I want is to free my wife, Delphine hissed. Your sister. Your own flesh and blood. She's my flesh and blood, too, Vivi reminded them. Apparently. Didn't stop you from framing her, did it? Sarah snapped. I had my orders, Vivi said. I didn't know about... She shrugged. The duct tape strained at the back of what was doubtless a very expensive antique chair. You know, clone club. Sarah walked across the dining room. She hooked a toe under the seat of the chair and flipped it over. It crashed to the floor. Vivi's head thudded against the hardwood. She winced and added that pain to the list of all her other injuries. Sarah swung a leg across Vivi's prone body and leaned down. I'm going to ask you this one more time. She said, Do you know where Kira is? No, Vivi said immediately. I don't, and I'm sorry, but if you let me go, I can help you find her. Who do you work for? I work on a little farm in Virginia, Vivi said. Delphine swore in French. Is that who ordered you to kill Kasima's advisor? Sarah asked. Is that who told you to blow up the lab? I didn't do those things, Vivi said. My mission is simply to observe and report. How many of you are there? Sarah asked. What? American clones. How many? Why didn't Delphine and Cosima know about you when they distributed the leader cure? 
Cure for what? Vivi swallowed. I don't know what you're talking about. Project Leda. Sarah leaned down. Don't play dumb. Don't lie to me. I'm the only one standing between you and getting your cover blown. Tell us everything or we will... The doorbell rang. Sarah straightened. She glanced at Delphine. Who's that? I have no idea, Delphine said. We weren't expecting anyone. Not even a package? Unknown visitor, front door, the house said. The bell kept ringing. The three women listened as it sounded again and again. Then there was a knock at the back door. Sharp, persistent. The way cops knocked. The bell continued chiming. The knocks kept banging. Unknown visitor, back door, the house said. Sarah's phone buzzed, then Delphine's. The phones chirped at each other like two birds fighting over the same crust of bread. Somewhere in the house, another phone, seemingly on an actual landline, began ringing. It did not stop. Neither did the knocking at the doors. The house percussed with the sound of attempted intrusion. Inside her pocket, Vivi's own phone tickled her insistently. It was a distinct buzz, the one she reserved for Arun. The hairs on Vivi's neck rose. For the first time, she began to suspect that something was really, truly wrong. What on earth? Delphine made for the door. Delphine, don't! Sarah reached for the other woman, but Delphine shook her off. What if it's about Cosima? Vivi watched as Delphine partially opened the front door. High-definition flashbulbs scattered their light through the narrow sliver of open space. Delphine did her best to obscure the interior of the house with her body. Hi there, I'm from Maple Leaf Rag, Canada's number one gossip site, the person at the door said. She was an Asian woman with a gray sweatshirt and a micro HD video camera on the end of a stick. She aimed the stick over Delphine's head so that the camera could see into the house. I'm here to ask you about the clones. Are they a hoax? Is this a viral marketing campaign for a TV show? Because the press kit looked like a viral marketing for a TV show. Press kit? Delphine asked. Oh, shit. Sarah muttered. Vivi watched as a tiny drone fluttered into the room through the open door. It circled overhead. A green light blinked down at her. She recognized the drone's make and model. It was popular for upskirt shots on the black markets of Seoul. Then and there, on the hardwood floor of an obscenely overpriced Victorian in Canada's largest city, she made up her mind. The clone club knew things she didn't. Her cover was almost certainly blown. She was likely about to be burned. It was every clone for herself now. And if she couldn't get out of here on her own, then she was damn well going to be carried out. Help me, Vivi shouted. I'm in here, help me. They're crazy, they think I'm a clone, help me. The woman at the door stuck her body into the house. Delphine tried to close the door, but the woman with the maple leaf rag sweatshirt wedged it open with her foot. Oh my God. She turned to look at the other people outside. This woman needs help. She's being held against her will. And that was how the reporters, bloggers, camera operators, and paparazzi entered Delphine and Cosima's house. They poured in all at once, the cameras flashing and the lights glaring. More camera drones zoomed into the house and took up residence on the ceiling like mosquitoes. She noticed this as two burly camera operators took hold of both her and Sarah. One held Sarah by the shoulders. The other pulled Vivi back up into an upright position and said soothing things while he used a multi-tool to cut her free of the duct tape. Thank you so much, she said, peeling the tape away. 
Oh my God, what a nightmare. She's crazy. They're both completely out of their minds. She frowned and pointed at something on her jaw. Hey, you have something right here. He pointed at his own jaw. Right here? She nodded. Yeah, right there. Hold still. Her fist crashed into his face. She was already out the door by the time he hit the floor. Behind her, everyone was screaming. Behind her, everyone was distracted. Vivi ran. You're listening to Orphan Black, the next chapter. Starring Tatiana Maslany. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Orphan Black, The Next Chapter is written by Malka Older, Lindsay Smith, Madeline Ashby, Michelle Baker, E.C. Myers, and Helly Kennedy. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, David Fortier, Ivan Shebeg, and Carrie Appleyard. In partnership with Boat Rocker Media and BBC America. Audio produced, sound designed, and edited by Amanda Rose Smith. Based on the television series Orphan Black. The theme music is by Two Fingers. <laughs>